Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about a Microsoft product that aims to use AI to help people with vision impairments to be better aware of their surroundings. And then we talk about how we can detect exoplanets using machine learning. Let's get started. In previous episodes, we've spent so much time talking about how artificial intelligence or machine learning is changing the world as we know it in some really dramatic ways. We talk about how AI can be helpful in the prediction of protein structures, which is kind of useful for drug development. And we talked about how AIs can mimic human speech in such a way that they stand a chance in a public debate. Some of these feel so pie in the sky that it's almost like yeah, AIs are cool and could potentially be really helpful, but what's an immediate need that I can relate to right this second that AI can help fulfill? And recently, I came across this article about Microsoft's Seeing AI app, and this is a free phone app that's designed to help folks with vision impairments better interact with the world around them. Ah, interesting. So, so what does it actually do? Well, first of all, caveat, it's only for iPhones for now, at least when I last looked. Um, the idea is that our phone cameras are so good now, they're kind of better than the fancy DSLRs, well, some of the low-end DSLRs. So if we wanted to utilize our phones to scan the world around us, we certainly can. And the phone has very fancy computing capabilities as well, so it can use AI to report back what it's seeing. In a sense, we can let our phone be our eyes. So imagine you have this long document in front of you that you need to read, and this is easy, right? You can have the phone scan it, and then it can read the text aloud. Uh, okay, so like an optical character recognition, um, or OCR, to detect the text, and then the app reads it out loud? Yeah, and that's obviously, as you say, not such a f new feature, right? You can kind of mm -hmm. do that for ages now, it feels like. Um, but that's just one of them. Another feature is that this app can be used to take a photo of a person around you. It'll automatically recognize your friends, and sometimes, even if it doesn't recognize the face, the app will try to summarize the person. So there's this demo video of this feature on, online, and uh, the user takes a photo of a guy who has to be properly centered for this to work, and then the app reads, 36-year-old male wearing glasses looking happy. Wow, that actually sounds really hard. I mean, if the picture taker has poor vision, I imagine that he or she could accidentally take a photo of just the person's body and, and not even their face. Yeah, there are so many parts of that that just made it sound um, either, either hard or kind of like unbelievable. So first of all, you're absolutely right. In order to make this work, the app provides audio cues to help you uh, properly place the subject in the photo. Um, so again, I think this is probably not so practical in real face-to-face -face interactions. Can you imagine just awkwardly telling someone to stay still while you move around them until you hit the perfect right angle to take a photo? You could just probably say, how are you feeling today? What's your name? Who are you? That's going to yeah. be a lot faster for that interaction. Yes, indeed. But, um, but maybe then the app can help you to confirm their response. Like they could be fooling you or something like that. 
Yeah, that's true. Although like, I'm still a little skeptical. Like how is the app supposed to know this person is 36 years old? Like that seems like, I'm glad the example used a male because for a female person, this could actually be a little offensive, right? If the app is trying <laughs> to offer an opinion on my age or something. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, um, there are certainly other ways of, of playing around with variations of this feature. So for example, you can also take photos of just general scenery. This is experimental, but um, that's probably just because they have a lower accuracy rate. So one such demo video shows that there's a photo outdoors and um, so you're taking a picture of the outdoors that gets processed and the text reads, a bus that is parked on the side of the road. So you can imagine, you know, the photo is just literally a, a bus on the street, and, and this is a pretty accurate description. So I feel that this part of it, although it's experimental, it seems a bit more practical than understanding how people look, because it's slightly less awkward to just take a random photo of something to get a sense of what's going on. Yeah, this sounds like a really nice feature. I, um, I wonder if it could eventually be used to interpret what a presenter displays on slides or what's happening in a musical play or, or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Although when you say that, I was initially thinking, huh, displays on slides, aren't they full of text anyway? Now you're talking about the good presentations where there's actually <laughs> photos and comics and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is definitely um, going to be helpful for interacting in those scenarios. But what's also cool is to me, like we spend all this time talking about novel ways of using artificial intelligence. And here it's just like, we're not necessarily talking about completely novel ways of applying um, statistics, right? This is all pretty much old news. However, just by combining it all together, right? Having it all combined together um, seems really, really nice and really, really helpful for people that um, we can actually have an impactful application of AI. Yeah, I like it. And I mean, really some of the greatest innovations can just be a matter of putting different puzzle pieces together, so. Yeah, absolutely. And this article also reminded me of Google Glass, um, you know, those that fad many years back. Do you still remember hearing about the Google Glass, Jesse? Yeah, I, I think back in, I want to say it was around 2014 that someone mentioned them in a talk. I, I didn't know, ever know really many details about it, but I, I do recall someone at least mentioning it in a talk about AI. Yeah, I think um, the only people who probably wore them or maybe still wear them are Google employees because they just looked so awkward and people thought, why would you, why would you wear these glasses on your face? And it just looks weird. Um, so, so basically they were smart glasses that were supposed to be um, scanning the world around you, probably showing you texts that were coming in or where you were, maybe doing navigation and so on. But I think we can agree that they didn't quite become the game changer as Google might have expected. And maybe in retrospect, it was just too much ahead of its time. Because I can imagine if this app was integrated into smart glasses, um, the experience just gets made to be a lot more seamless. Rather than having to physically click a button to take photos of people or scenes that you need summarized, the smart glasses can do a continued scanning of your surroundings. And if you're wearing an earpiece like a Bluetooth headset, it can tell you on the fly about what it sees. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, it actually could be useful too for um, for those who are 
have, are very vision impaired. Um, so I, I remember at some point back in college looking up what the actual legal definition of um, the actual definition of being legally blind is, and it's when your vision cannot be corrected better than something like 2200. Um, so it's not always that you can't see anything, but um, so maybe some um, glasses like this could be helpful for those who just can't be corrected up to 2020, and um, and it could help help those them you know, see things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to see. Yeah, it could certainly improve the quality of life for folks who are living with those challenges, for sure. It is not uncommon these days for undergraduates to get involved in research. A fellow astrostatistician from Carnegie Mellon University recently sent me a link to an NPR article about a senior undergraduate student from the University of Texas at Austin. Um, her name's Anne Dottillo who, along with several other collaborators, detected two exoplanets using artificial intelligence. Uh, so exoplanets, um, or more formally extrasolar planets, are planets orbiting stars other than the sun. Yay for undergraduate students. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that undergrads are being involved um, so early on in research. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> So are there some familiar examples of exoplanets or maybe, I guess not, maybe more familiar examples of other suns out there? Yeah, so, um, so all host stars uh, would be considered the suns of the orbiting exoplanets. And um, there are lots of examples now. So one neat system that was announced in 2017 is called the TRAPPIST-1 system. And um, that, that system has seven terrestrial planets. So terrestrial planets are kind of the rocky planets like Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And this is the most terrestrial planets found in a single system so far. And it turns out that three of the planets are in what's referred to as the habitable zone of the host star. So this generally means that the planet could support liquid water on their surfaces. So that's kind of a neat system. Uh, there are lots of other really cool exoplanet systems that have been discovered, though. Wow. TRAPPIST-1. I think that's vaguely familiar. So how many exoplanets have been discovered so far? According to the NASA Exoplanet Archive, there are about 3,933 confirmed exoplanets. This is wow. as, as of early April of 2019. And uh, Dottillo's detections relied on what's called the transit method, which has been the most successful method for detecting exoplanets so far. And this is thanks to NASA's Kepler mission. Tell us a little bit more about the transit method. Yeah, of course, of course. So the transit method uses data that's measuring the brightness of, of stars across time. And so if you're monitoring the brightness of the star across time, you're, what you're trying to find in order to detect an exoplanet is a dip in the brightness. And if there's a dip in the brightness, that suggests that an object, such as potentially a planet, is crossing between the star and the instrument that's, that's measuring the light output. And so the standard for NASA's Kepler mission was to observe three periodic dips to, um, and, and some other characteristics to confirm the presence of an exoplanet. I see. So in trying to find exoplanets, we have to start with the stars themselves. So do stars that don't have orbiting planets then just have a relatively constant amount of brightness emitted? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that um, it tends to be pretty constant, but, um, but not always perfectly, of course. So there are other things going on on the surface of stars that can affect its brightness. Um, so things like spots, like we, we know um, 
many people have heard of sunspots, which are kind of darker regions on the surface of the sun. So other stars can have spots as well. And there's other types of what I'll just generally call stellar activity that can affect the, the brightness of the star. But, um, but for the most part, many stars do tend to have a pretty stable brightness. Cool. So what's new about the Dottillo work? How's, how does AI get involved here? Yeah, so she adapted a method that two of her co-authors, so Christopher Shale and Andrew Vanderberg, are the two, um, two of her co-authors who had developed um, this approach for the original Kepler data. Um, and that was, um, so we'll, I'll mention a little bit about that shortly, but in order for us to tell the story about Tatula's method, we really do actually have to take a step back um, and hear a little about a little bit about the history of NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, because what she did um, is an extension to the original Kepler data set. Um, so Kep the Kepler Space Telescope is a telescope that um, started observing the brightness of over 100,000 stars in our Milky Way, so that's our host galaxy, um, back in 2009. At some point in 2012, the plan was to extend the mission several years, um, but unfortunately, in July of 2012, one of the four reaction wheels on the telescope had failed. Um, so the reaction wheels are used for pointing the spacecraft in the desired direction. Um, so having one fail wasn't such a problem. It could um, continue on with the original mission. But unfortunately, a second reaction wheel failed in May of 2013. Wow, that's pretty close. So they maybe they're... Are the, are the others still still going at that point, I guess? Yeah, I mean, so at this point, the other, well, the other two did continue beyond that, fortunately. Um, but the, um, it did really affect the original plan or the original mission for the Kepler um, Space Telescope. Um, so, um, uh, so fortunately, they did not have to fully abort the mission. And thanks to some clever ideas from scientists um, working on Kepler, they were able to modify the mission. So they modified some of the goals. So instead of focusing on the original target region of the Milky Way, so the original collection of 100,000 plus stars, um, they were still able to detect exoplanets with the, um, with the telescope, but, um, but they were observing a different region of the Milky Way and they weren't able to observe the stars for as long as they um, were able to with the original, you know, ha having all the reaction wheels in place. So this new mission then was referred to or is referred to as, um, as K2. And K2 has been successful at detecting exoplanets as well, but the data are not as clean as the original Kepler mission because the, um, the telescope now is not as stable. And there are various systematic issues that make the data just generally noisier. And as I already noted, it shortened the length of time a target could be observed. Um, so this is what gets us into Datillo's work. So she adapted a method that had been designed for the original Kepler data um, to, to work on this new K2 data that's noisier and has um, more issues with it. I see. Yeah, lower quality data definitely makes analysis far more challenging. So how does the method work? So the, the goal of both the original and the adapted method was to classify a signal in a light curve. So the light curve is the light output of the star across time. And it was, um, so to classify a, a potential signal as an actual planet candidate, 
or a false positive. And so false positives can occur due to, I mean, it could just be instrumentation issues like um, causing blips in the light curve that, that seem like periodic dips, or there could be other astrophysical phenomena going on. And so Datillo um, and her co-authors built a supervised deep convolutional neural network designed specifically for the K2 data. That is certainly a mouthful, supervised deep convolutional neural network. <laughs> yeah, it is really. And, uh, and the supervised implies that they were using label data to, to train their network. And, um, and so part of, a large part of this work seemed to um, be just in trying to build the label data set of the training data. Yeah, that sounds really hard because they probably had a very different, sort of a very substantial change in the instrument used to measure the light curve as a result of the uh, space telescope reaction wheel malfunction. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so it was a rather involved process that included things like correcting the light curves for the um, systematics due to the spacecraft, but, um, but ultimately they had 51,711 possibly periodic signals. And so they call these possibly periodic signals um, threshold crossing events or TCEs. And they were identified using a method for searching for transit signals in light curves. And then among those, they labeled 31,575 of them by hand to get their training set. <laughs> Hopefully that was crowdsourced because it's a lot of labeling there. Yeah. And so the crazy thing is, I, I think they actually did it themselves. Oh my um, yeah, they, they had um, maybe a, um, the a team of people doing it, um, but um, but they you know they had to you know get the the labels down, and they had to do another a number of other things to get the training set in working order. And so then they finally ended up after um, kind of cleaning up the data a bit, they ended up with twenty seven thousand six hundred and thirty four TCEs. And so, so with all this labeled, all these labeled TCEs now, um, they divided it up so that 80% were used for training the model, 10% were used for validation, and then uh, the remaining 10% was used for testing. So they call this, this new method um, AstroNet-K2. All right, Jesse, I'm going to slow you down a bit. So we just, you just talked about what the supervised bit means. And next we have this notion of a deep convolutional network, uh, neural network. And if you'll recall from our earlier episodes, convolutional neural nets are a specific flavor of a neural network that excels at working with image data. So in a nutshell, it consists of multiple layers wherein local patches of information are aggregated and passed up to the next layer. So the first layer, we might simply be passing through information about pixel colors in the space imagery. And then as we progress through the layers, we aggregate together more and more abstract information such as textures, edges, etc. Now deep CNNs um, are basically where we have many, many, many such layers to pass through. And these have been useful for things like object detection and image classification. And image classification sounds exactly like the task that we have here. Yeah, um, indeed. So, um, so it's it's actually using, I, I believe, the the curves rather than images, but it has a, a similar okay. sort of sort of flavor for sure. And then um, the ten percent validation set that I, I noted, um, that's used in part to select optimal parameters for the network. And so, optimal param parameters for the network would mean things like the um, the number of layers or the composition of each layer. 
So for additional um, details on Astronet K2, you can actually check out the earlier paper by Shalu and Vanderberg from 2018, which we'll link on our website. So, so they have more of the details of the original deep convolutional neural network that was adapted for the K2 data. So we've got all these labeled images that go in as input, and then presumably the model predicts whether the TCE is a false positive or a planet candidate. Yes, exactly. So the output is an estimate of the probability that a TCE is a planet candidate. And so um, using the test data, so that's the 10% of the um, 27,634 labeled TCEs, they evaluated their method using just a variety of different measures. Um, since the output is a probability estimate, they, they do have to select at some point a threshold for classifying a TC as a planet candidate versus a false positive. So for example, if they set that threshold to 0.5 so that output values greater than 0.5 are classified as planet candidates, um, so setting that as a threshold, they get um, nine, that 97.84% of the test TCEs are classified correctly. That's an A plus, isn't it? That's pretty good. <laughs> yep. Now, you mentioned they detected two new exoplanets, and that's using this new model. Yes, yeah. So they ran their trained model on new TCEs. And so I did not mention this earlier, but the TCEs that they used for the, the training were the TCEs with the strongest signal for a given host star. So as you might imagine, a star could have multiple planets. And, um, and so um, certain planets could produce a, a larger signal. So the ones with the, um, the strongest signal were used in that training set. And so then once those were removed, additional TCs can be found on the star. So some of these extra TCs were considered now with this kind of follow-up. And among them were these two new candidates, which the train network classified as planet candidates. Jesse, you keep on using the term planet candidate. I feel like we're interviewing for planets or something. Does this mean they have to do more to confirm that they actually are exoplanets? As a matter of fact, yes. Uh, so they, uh, so after they had these um, these two um, planet candidates labeled, um, they investigated other possible astrophysical explanations for the the dips that they they were detecting. And, um, and then furthermore, they collected additional data on the two host stars using a different instrument, which led them to confirming that they are actually exoplanets. So the, the names of these two new exoplanets are K2-293b and K2-294b. And so um, both are classified as super Earths because they are a bit larger than the Earth in terms of radius. So um, so the first one has a radius that's 2.45 times the radius of the Earth, and the, um, the second one mentioned has a radius of 1.65 times the radius of the Earth. I'm guessing we'll give them better names once we find life, signs of life on these planets, but for now they're just going to have hyphenated numeric number names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So exoplanets are generally named based on um, the host star. So that's the K2-293. And it's labeled because of the K2 mission. And then the first planet detected gets the, um, the B added. The next one gets a C and so, so, so forth. So there's, there is a naming convention. But yeah, I think planets that end up being really cool can end up with better names as well, kind of like nickname type things. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Jesse, as we like to consider for any method, um, are there any limitations that were specified to these to the uh, current method here? Uh, yes, actually, um, they have a number of great points in the paper that and are quite open about the limitations of their proposed algorithm. Um, one limitation is that the method is designed for finding typical planet transit signals. And so if there are planets with unusual or surprising or maybe astrophysically interesting transits, then this model may not actually detect them. So there's still an opportunity for new researchers, maybe undergrads, to build classification models to cater to some of these atypical transits. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, if anyone's interested in helping to detect exoplanets, um, you can search for um, planet hunters, which is um, it's going to display light curves and ask participants to locate possible transits. So it's kind of using um, crowdsourcing to find planets. So if you go to planethunters.org, it's going to redirect you to the correct website at um, zooniverse.org. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's harder to spell on radio, so we'll we'll stick with Planet Hunters for now. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.